You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have about 15 years covering the manufacturing industry. Each week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites and discuss the implications they might have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you could reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Anna, how are you doing this week? Great. How are you? I am doing excellent. As you noted, before we started, we do still have plenty of t-shirts to give away, so... Mm-hmm. Reach out if you want one, guys. We really appreciate it. So cozy, just in time for the holidays. That's right. You can wear it to the holidays (laughs) and then describe to every family member what your t-shirt means. (laughs) Jeff, uh, how are you doing this week? I'm good, David. How are you? I see you've got the coffee going instead of the water today. What's in there? Is that a a reflection on maybe some, some of the challenges? That you've encountered over the last 48 hours or so on the home front? Yes, yes. I have had some uh, health-related challenges with the children, which are keeping me up at all night, all night. So uh, we just transferred from gin to coffee. So it's not a smooth transition right now. A little choppy right now. A little is, choppy. That, is that really coffee? It is coffee, yeah. Oh, I figured no. let's jump back on okay. right now. Yeah, all right. Yeah, all right. it's going to be all right. <laughs> right? I put it in my eyes to get the bags to go away. <laughs> um Jeff, have you given any T-shirts, Today in Manufacturing T-shirts, to family members yet? No, I haven't. Actually, you know, I took one. I took one for my wife. Oh, very good. Those. That's good. So you got to get that logo out there. All right, let's get rolling. Our first story this week, Cadillac calls hundreds of dealers in shift to EVs. For decades, Cadillac was the nation's leading luxury auto brand. But GM's luxury nameplate has watched its U.S. market share erode. The brand is pivoting to EVs and is making some tough decisions to make it happen. Cadillac is overhauling its U.S. dealership network and cutting anyone unwilling to accommodate a rapid shift to electric vehicles. The company wanted each dealer to invest $200,000 to $500,000 in new equipment and employee training for EVs. Cadillac then spent $274 million buying out ones that declined. In 2018, the company had 920 authorized dealers in the U.S. By the end of this year, Anna, they're going to be down to 560. So nearly cut it in half. Is this just another sign of the times as people move away to a sort of direct purchase model? I think in a sense, yeah. I mean... As Andy's all points out in the video, um, <clears throat> there are car makers like Tesla, for example, that have no dealers and they're I think, doing just fine. Um, I think the larger issue here is that you have a subset of dealers that are like flat out refusing to modernize, like to support the strategic objectives of your company, mm-hmm. uh, which to me is a problem. I mean, if you're Cadillac, like you have these dealerships, which are basically your consumer-facing sales force. They're your outside sales team. They're responsible in many ways for, like, being your brand ambassadors. Mm-hmm. If they're not willing to fall in line with product line changes, um, then what else can you do except take them out of the game, unfortunately? like, right. So I think maybe when the opportunity arose, like, Cadillac maybe was thinking, let's kill two birds with one stone, um, you know, take some of these laggard dealers out of the picture. But also... 
streamline that dealer network a little bit because we know um, that that they have a new virtual sh showroom Cadillac does that they've been using. They're saying that it's increasing in traffic. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're looking at, I don't think that, that GM or Ford or any of the big three are, are going to go away from a, a dealer model completely, mm -hmm. but I could see them doing more of a hybrid approach. Like some of the automakers have talked about where it's, it's kind of a mix between dealer presence and also online and showrooms and just a mix of all those things. Um, I think you could cut some costs that way. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily bad for Cadillac. Um, I think Cadillac is saw it as necessary and maybe it will have a, a cost um, benefit as well. Well, and if there's any brands that you want to demand sort of perfection with the dealership, it has to be your luxury brand, correct? Right. And that Lyric SUV uh, that's set to come out, I believe, next year mm -hmm. um, is really nice. It's gotten a lot of really good reviews. Um, I think it's sold out already oh, well. in pre-orders. So, um, you know. They have, there's a big imperative to like make this work. And if, if those dealers aren't on board, like I said, I don't know what else they can do. Right. Uh, Jeff, do you think if some of the dealers would have spent more money investing in their dealerships instead of lobbying and fighting Tesla's efforts to have a non-dealership model, maybe they'd have a little more cash on hand to make an investment? I don't think it's that they didn't have the cash on hand to make the investment. I think they were completely uninterested in making that investment. Yeah. Um, when you look at Cadillac sales since 2005, they've dropped significantly. Um, you know, in 2005, they had sold over 220,000 vehicles. 2019, just over 156,000. And when you look at that in relation to their market share, which was never that big, mm -hmm. it's the equivalent of losing 30% of their market share. They dropped from having about 1.5% to way less than 1%. Mm. So my point is Cadillac is not a strong brand right now. Mm. And I think a lot of that is because when you look at who they're competing with, they do not have the performance or quality levels of a Mercedes or a BMW or anybody like that, and they're not priced as high. So really who they compete with most is Lexus. Lexus has been doubling up on sales in comparison to Cadillac for the last 15 years. Yeah. They've been outselling them two to one. So – the really the bulk of what Cadillac has going on is the Escalade. That mm -hmm. makes up 20% of their total sales on an annual basis. Okay. So if they don't have other SUV models other than this Lyric to support that, I think what a lot of these dealers are basically saying is, look, you can take Cadillac away. I don't care. Mm -hmm. I've got Buick. I've got GMC. They have more SUV models. And the disparity between what you're charging for a Cadillac and what I can get for a Buick I'll take it. Yeah. That's a $20,000 difference in just the base models between those. And people are real happy buying what I've got here. Yeah. So I'm more willing to support those brands as opposed to Cadillac, which has been fading for the last 15 years. Cadillac really positioned this as we cut some dead weight. These mm -hmm. guys didn't want to support it. They didn't want to take care of it. The reality is if a dealership sees money in servicing <laughs> and supporting a brand, they're going to do it. According to the National Automotive Dealers Association, 45% of profitability of a dealership comes from service. Yeah. comes from selling parts and changing oil. Yeah. Okay? So if there's nothing there because there's not enough Cadillacs out there for them to take care of, they're going to say, take your sign. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a huge loss for Cadillac. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at 40% of these dealers where there is no presence for that brand, Right. That is a big deal. I think that's a huge loss. And I think as much as they want to try to position this as, well, we left these folks who didn't want to catch up and get with the technology behind, I think these dealers basically just walked away. 
Yeah, I think they were uninterested in, in supporting Cadillac. Is part of the problem that when I think of Cadillac being a luxury brand, I still think of my grandparents' generation, and <clears throat> not many of them are driving anymore. Is that <laughs> part of the problem? It's, it's the Harley of automotive. Yeah. I think a little bit. I mean, when you look at their their sedan sales, okay, their non-SUV sales, yeah. wow, they have plummeted. Mm-hmm, yeah. When yeah. you looked 15 years ago, the Escalade made up about 12 to 13% of their sales. Now it's 20%. Mm-hmm. They're actually selling more Escalades now than they did 15 years ago, but overall their sales have dropped tremendously. Yeah. So, again, they've got this one winner. Everything else is lagging for the reasons that we just talked about. Yeah. The brand could be entirely electric by 2030. That's what they're targeting. Uh, and, you know, we'll see how this Lyric does, the Lyric SUV, when it debuts next year. Um, I found it interesting just to mention how GM has set a goal of making only electric passenger vehicles by 2035. You know, GM is putting <clears throat> its money where its mouth is, essentially investing $35 billion globally in EV and autonomous vehicles through 2025. You know, there's $2.3 billion to make Ultium batteries in Lordstown with LG that's going to create 1,100 jobs. $2.3 billion in Tennessee on a second battery plant, 1,300 jobs. $2.2 billion to retool the Detroit Hamtramck factory. <laughs> Impossible to say. Impossible to say. Now known as Factory Zero. That's another 2,200 jobs. So it's not like GM's asking any dealer to do something that they're not significantly investing in mm-hmm. on their own. Well, that's what I think, too. And, you know, I know, Jeff, you think it's a tremendous loss for Cadillac. But, I mean, how do you work with pushing this product to market with people who don't want to sell it. I mean, that's mm-hmm. all, that would be a huge cost center for them as well to try to but populate those dealerships yeah. with inventory. And I, I just don't, I don't see how that works. So uh, agree to disagree, I guess. Uh, I but can I see think, your side, but. I think one leads to the other. The reason why they don't want to invest is because there's nothing new coming from that brand that makes it, val- that brings value to The them. Lyric, Jeff, have you seen it? It is stunning. That's two. Yeah. You come that in the Escalade. You need a little more than that, in my opinion. Uh, GM's strategy with EVs and autonomous vehicles is working towards this zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. You know, within this time frame, is that possible? Or is that too pie in the sky? <laughs> yes. It, yeah. it, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I you know, everybody is is moving that, that goalpost uh, a little closer and a little I feel like faster and faster, like even since we've started this podcast, Mm -hmm. you know, it's been 41 weeks. And when we first started talking, it seemed like as people were pushing these EV agendas, it was kind of like, all right, you know, Jeff's point is always, we'll see if the market's there for it. Mm -hmm. But it seems like that's all that's going to be available for the market. Again, I'm not that pessimistic. Yeah. I, I understand that this is their goal. Yeah. Goals change. Goals shift. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll see. Yeah, I, I'm not. That's a, it just an seems, awfully pessimistic sounding. We'll yeah, see. It yeah. sounds. I'm not pessimistic, I don't, but whatever. well, I don't. I, I just don't mm-hmm. see these automakers making this huge, dramatic of a shift mm-hmm. in a, in less than a decade. Yeah, I don't. That's that. I guess that's what kind of gets me too, Anna. Is that as we write these up, mm-hmm. I look at the dates and I'm like, I mean, that's like real soon, guys. Well, I mean, it was funny that like when when Trump was sort of. Uh, you know, I don't. He didn't want to make these changes, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the automakers at the time were like, "Neither do we. We can't do this. It's too hard." And then when Biden came um, aboard, then they're like, "Actually, we can, and we will." Mm. So, uh, yeah, I know. Like, it's hard to know exactly how it's going to play out. But I think people are also getting 
um, feeling a little bit more the urgency mm-hmm. with climate change. There's a lot of pressure internationally. I think that pressure is going to maintain. Um, there's just a lot that the automotive market can do about it. Mm-hmm. And so until that changes, which it won't for now, you know, um, right. then there's going to be a lot of pressure on them to change. Okay. Well, let's move on to our next story. Our next most popular story this week, Dodge to hire chief donut maker. Hmm. Dodge is looking for a C-level brand ambassador to promote its new marketing strategy, Never Lift. Never Lift is a campaign that Dodge announced earlier this week that focuses on performance cars. The new job is part of a play to revive Dodge's direct connection performance parts business, establishing special dealers to sell them and announcing new products every three months for the next two years. The company wants someone who embodies the spirit of the founding Dodge brothers, scrappy go-getters who were, quote, never content to follow the trends. In their search for a better, faster, more outrageous way of doing things. The one-year contract for a chief donut officer includes a Hellcat to drive for a year, a $150,000 salary, and a custom wardrobe. And you don't even need to quit your day job to take this position. Anna, I feel like (laughs) when we get these promotional, you know, marketing positions... This one's already paid off for itself. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I already picture, as soon as this came out, I was just picturing like the the marketing team just like sitting in the office. Because like, okay, who are the Dodge brothers? Has anyone ever, did, did were you aware that, of these? Yeah. Oh, well. Okay. I was not. I, I wasn't either. And I was yeah. picturing them just like Wikipedia, like, hey, you guys, did you know there was two dudes? Yeah. And they were named Dodge, Dodge and Dodge. We should do something with that. Yeah. I uh, no, I uh, who do you picture as a chief donut officer? For me, every time I say it, I think of that guy who hosts Gas Monkey. I cannot wait to see what the wardrobe is because wardrobe is part of the comp. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you think that is? Like, like a full suit with like the legs cut off the pants and they get out of the car and they're like, yeah, Yeah. like business on top party. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of denim, maybe. (laughs) Maybe, yeah, definitely a lot of dark hues. Anyway, I think that this is this is a, a viral marketing strategy that we've seen a couple times this year. It's actually kind of on trend right now. We saw uh, Anheuser-Busch tried to hire a dog beer taster. Right, yeah. That you could apply for your dog to be that, that have that job. Mm-hmm. Um, McCormick, the food company, um, they were looking for a, what was it, a taco, director of taco relations. Yeah, person yeah. Like I did not get that one. Yeah. Did apply. Oh, you did apply. Okay. I did. It's a taco position. I guess. I'm not a, a lot of taco positions out there. I'm At more first, I mean, you didn't comprehend why, <laughs> as opposed to not receiving a job offer. No, no, no. Like, and I was thinking you needed one. more coffee. See, uh, no, that one, you know, chief taco officer, I get that immediately. Chief donut officer, I'm like, ah, I want it, but I'm just, I would like, I wouldn't drive the Hellcat even. <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't know how to do a donut. Yeah. I wouldn't, yeah, I would just Come like I mean, just, putter around. You live in Wisconsin, even unintentionally, you've done a donut before. Well, in the, in, I know how to do the donut in the snow, but like in terms of like firing <laughs> it up in a dry parking lot, I couldn't That's, get it done. That could be a little dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I I, wouldn't stop me for sure. Yeah. Anyway, I think these strategies are kind of fun. They seem to be working. Um, as you said, I think they kind of pay for themselves pretty quickly. Uh, it, you know, comp- companies are always looking for ways to get people to interact with their brands and mm-hmm. to remember them. 
um, to show kind of their market leadership. I think with McCormick, like they were able to put a, a face and a name to uh, something that's largely, I think, been a commodity, which is like spices and seasonings. Yeah. Um, taco powder. Ta- taco po- powder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you look at the cost of just this person's salary and maybe the promotion of this campaign, I think that they're making a lot of money back on exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, I think there has to be a limit. Like, I'm not sure what that is. Like when you're seeking like someone to like taste test bullion cubes and use <laughs> yeah. waffle maker, yeah. chief waffle iron user. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> At some point people are gonna be like, all right enough. But for now, I don't know. It's kind of fun. Yeah. The head of paninis. Uh, <laughs> head of paninis. <laughs> Jeff, if uh, you're chief donut officer, A, aren't you upset that you don't get to keep the Hellcats? And B, What's to stop you from just jumping into all those high-level meetings and be like, hey, Jeff Ranky here, chief donut officer. Let's get down to brass tacks. Brass tacks? I'm brass assuming tacks. that's wow. what you say. Is that, is that, are these board meetings taking place in like 1950 <laughs> or something? Yeah. Or? According to my book about how to take a control of a conversation, oh. you just get in there and brass tacks. See, because I'm envisioning this guy looking something like John Cena, just walking in in like a t-shirt and jean shorts and being <laughs> throwing his feet up on the table and being like, yeah. "What are you losers doing? Oh, this is what yeah. you need." Wind machine, yeah. probably. This ain't hard. You know, the thing about Dodge vehicles overall, I've always loved the way they look. Mm-hmm. I have never cared for the way they handled and drove. Like I've never been a huge Dodge fan. Yeah. I owned one in my life and just wasn't didn't get into it. But they do have this image, and I think they're just continuing to double down on it, which is all about sort of reliving the muscle car dynamic, you know, lots of power, lots of attitude in their vehicles. And I think Dodge owners, and if you are loyal to that brand, this is what you love about it. Mm-hmm. You know, even when they look at going beyond, they, they did not go so far as to say this is going to be a traditional muscle car or anything that they're looking to do. The Hellcat, the, cha- the Charger that they've done, they have that look, but they have also improved stuff like fuel efficiency. They do have a huge campaign coming out in 2024 with their e-muscle electric car. <laughs> yeah. Which, if you saw the promo video for, again, they're just, it is a wrestling promo shoot. It's like (laughs) smoke and rock music. And it's, and quite honestly, if you're into that, it looks cool because when they show some of the looks of this vehicle, it's your old school, it looks like an old Challenger to me, uh, or maybe a Charger, like the Dukes of Hazard car. You know, I mean, it's, and if that's what you're into as far as this brand, this whole promotion just fits perfectly Mm -hmm. into that. And I think it really speaks to that core group of customers. From an automotive perspective, which we've talked about before with the advent of EVs and the growth of them, it takes away from some of those opportunities to tinker and, and mess with your car to improve its performance and stuff. Yeah. You're a little bit more limited there. And I think Dodge just wants to sort of engage that spirit and, and capture that in these types of promotions. Does Dodge go fully Harley e-bike with this one and wind up hiring as chief donut officer like some skinny jean wearing 20-something named Clayton? Oh. No, even though that is my wife's cousin, um, <laughs> even down to the name, you even got the name right. Um, Tell him to apply. Give yeah. him a shirt. No. So no, I don't think he. I don't think he'd be a Dodge guy. Yeah. Um, hopefully, I don't think that would. I don't think that would fit with what they're trying to do. Okay, but I'm just saying. Maybe if, I'm wrong. If you want to double down on the exposure, you know that'll get you. That'll get you some more views. You know, a lot of this is a, a move of a, is a big part of getting the performance parts business moving. Uh, and they're calling it Operation 25-8 because <clears throat> some go 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they go one more hour, one more day, which isn't possible. <laughs> there aren't more hours or days. That's just, I mean, 
I hate those. Oh, come on. We're going to do it. 110%? Yeah. God. (laughs) So dumb. So one thing that was also interesting is, you know, this is a thousand word release on this new promotion. And then just like one little sentence. Amazon is also a part of this giveaway. <laughs> just like, they don't say why either, like what they're doing. No, the very obligatory, like, well, Amazon's paying for us. Coming from. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so Dodge is going to provide more details on the Chief Donut Maker program January 12, 2022. So still time to apply for anyone that's interested. Clayton. <laughs> Clayton, get after it. And so the Chief Donut Officer is also a consumer program designed to celebrate one of the unsung enthusiasts that make up the backbone of what Dodge Brent, Dodge calls the Brotherhood of Muscle. Have you are you guys familiar with the Dodge Brotherhood of Muscle? Am I? <laughs> this looks straight up your alley, Anna. Yeah, on, be real. Yeah. Come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes back to as far as I can tell, a 2017 campaign for the or a, a campaign back uh, regarding the 2017 Dodge Challenger SRT Demon which they partnered with Vin Diesel to create this brotherhood of muscle. And man, it just, anytime we can get a fast and furious tie in, you know, there you go. Mm-hmm. it is going to be John Cena. That's the yeah. chief donut maker. Oh, that's I already feel it. Oh man. It's, actu- right. it's actually just already cast in like F 11. <laughs> whatever they're in. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to our next most popular story this week. GE to split into three companies. American manufacturing icon general electric got too big. This week, the company announced plans to divide itself into three public companies focused on aviation, healthcare, and energy. The company has been reshaping itself for years, and some say this could be a sign of things to come, including the end of the conglomerate age. In preparation for this move, GE already sold its appliance division to Hare for $5.6 billion, and last year, it sold its sagging light bulb business, which nearly has 130 years of history, to a company named Savant Systems. GE's aviation unit, which is its most profitable, will keep the General Electric name, and GE will spin off healthcare in early 2023, and its energy segment will move in early 2024. Jeff, do you think it's good that aviation kept the General Electric brand? Do you think the brands are healthier spinning off and starting completely anew, or do you think there's something good with holding on to that GE legacy brand? I think there is benefit to holding on to the GE part of it, mm-hmm. even though it's not Jack Donahue's um, GE anymore <laughs> right. here. This all happened because of 30 Rock, <laughs> just slamming GE for years. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's interesting, and I think it is smart to hold on to that. I think there's definitely value in that brand name. And with the way they're diversifying here, I, I guess not diversifying, but streamlining, simplifying, I'm not sure what the right word is, where they are, aviation, healthcare, and energy – Great, great places to be, mm-hmm. and you are still somewhat diverse. I think if, when I thought about General Electric back in the day, you know the Jack Welsh days. Have you ever seen that movie, The Other Guys? It's got Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell. It's oh kind yeah, of funny. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, one of the parts of that is this movie called Lendl Global, and their phrase is "We're in everything." Oh, like that was GE. They mm-hmm. did absolutely everything. <laughs> they had oil platforms, they had financing, they had everything. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they have over the course of time narrowed down their focus to these three areas, I think it just sort of leads, it kind of personifies this trend within our economy at all levels where first you want to be big and diverse and be in as many things as you can. And then, well, the economy changes a little bit. Let's be focused. So it kind of goes away from being overly diversified to more specialized in what you're doing. And there are still a lot of efficiencies that they can realize from these three areas. We see it in a lot of the companies that we work with and that advertise with us. 
av- I mean, aviation slash slash aerospace, medical. There's a lot of overlap there. Mm-hmm. And then when you talk about a lot of the advancements that are going on in cleaner energy mm-hmm. and, and things like that, again, you need to uh, power the the planes with something. So if you can <laughs> use some of those that energy technology, there's again, there's some nice. I hate using this. Yep, word. you're gonna. Connections. I'm not going to say it. Uh, there's some nice connections between all of those things. Synergies. Nope, not going to say it. Is uh, part of this part of this they mentioned? You know, might be the ability to be more agile and flexible. And I definitely think that moving away from that conglomerate model will help them attain that. You would think so. I mean, again, they they can focus a little more. Yeah, for now, anyways. For now, uh, Anna. Your thought on the move for GE, and uh, is this a sign of more things to come, or that we might see from more conglomerates? Uh, maybe. I mean, I I already can't wait to tell my grandchildren someday that I live during the great conglomerate age. This <laughs> 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 is fascinating. Is that how you're going to say it? Yeah. Back in my day, in the conglomerate. In age. the conglomerate age, uh, everybody sold everything. You guys, you don't even know about that. Um, I don't know. I think it's easy to forget how decimated GE was by the recession in 2008. That was catastrophic for them. But what I found most interesting about this report was they talked a lot about Jack Welch and his influence on um, making GE into the behemoth that it became. Mm -hmm. Not once did they mention the name Jeffrey Immelt, which Mm -hmm. I think a a lot of us know that name. Right. Um, He was the CEO who succeeded Jack Welch. And he has... um, He's been held, I think, largely responsible for a lot of the problems the company had. Um, he's been blamed for, for for so many things, but but like, <laughs> like I mean, like so he was sued, uh, for example, by like employees, um, investors. Uh, there was a point where GE initiated an investigation into his tenure after he had retired because stockholders were claiming that he was responsible for the declining worth of their stock and they were wanting to charge him with like fraud and abuse of company funds and actually try to claw back some of the salary that they had paid him over like 15 years, which was like, you know, probably close to $200 million during that time that he was paid. Um, Anyway, they didn't find any like actionable misconduct Mm -hmm. um, or like anything willful, like bad faith efforts. So, that like that didn't like proceed, but I don't think it ch- changed the narrative of the fact that like at best, like he just did a terrible job. Yeah, um, I can't imagine that they didn't <laughs> include that in the company's swan song. Well, I, I don't think I'd call it a swan song. I, I I thought it was strange that they were not more upfront and specific about some of the challenges that they'd encountered in the last twenty years. Yeah, and why this were, is happening? Right, why yeah. is this happening? Because right. they just, you know, there was like Jack Welch and his legacy, and here's what he did, and then it was a little bit hard. And then we're all, then we're fine. Yeah, yeah. Things, but now we, things are going to be great. Again. We had a rough patch, and now we're going to just divest everything that we've. Yeah, yeah. It just yada 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 it. I don't know. I just like like I read this. Um, I don't know. I think one of the most notable stories about Jeffrey Immelt that I read um, was one. Uh, shareholder was trying to sue him um, for, I think, misuse of company funds or something. I don't know. Um, But there was claims in this report that Imeld had routinely, when he would fly um, in his private jet, he would take an empty one behind him just in case his plane had maintenance problems. What? (laughs) (laughs) That is... That's excessive. That's a baller move. I was was just about to say, you know, not that I'm an apologist for him in any way, but Mm -hmm. they did start to pile on. 
towards the end. Oh, I like, agree. Some of well, it, I mean, I agree. And it's, it's like you know, yeah. the toilet overflowed. I'm out. I know. I, I agree. That's not. It's not fair to like peg the the collapse of an entire company on one person. That's you know that that's not true. I mean. <laughs> The recession was difficult for them. I don't think that he and like the, like I said that that investigation did not bring to light any sort of like I don't know willful misuse of company funds. But or, it, it was almost comical because I can remember this. It was like I don't know yeah. how many quarterly board meetings in a row like this topic came up in terms of going after him. And, oh yeah, people and were stuff. mad. It was, he was and, not a popular guy. Well, because their stock dropped like eighty percent or something yeah. during the yeah. recession, um, which I feel like is bad. Uh, so anyway, yeah. even even though the recession like had this catastrophic effect on on the company, um, so did Jeffrey Amelt. And mm-hmm. I think like the way it was positioned when that recession hit, like they had made some kind of questionable investments and um, acquisitions prior to that, mm-hmm. and just tanked. You know, yeah. so um, so he, he he was involved. I think I, I don't <laughs> I don't think we can forget and sweep the legacy of of Amelt under the rug. I feel like a lot of this is the natural flow of business where we see. All these small companies succeed, grow into these large, uh, you know, these large entities that almost can't be controlled or uh, remain profitable or, you know, suit their uh, many masters. And so Mm -hmm. they have to be torn into pieces. And so this is just it being torn down again. And I see in the future GE rising again to being a conglomerate again. I just think it's going to happen. It's inevitable. Yeah, it'll be interesting once because they're in these three huge markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If they almost go the same route they did before and they're like, well, this is sort of on the periphery. Yeah, we can grab these guys and we'll do yeah. it over here too. Mm-hmm. Or if they're going to truly stay focused on what they do best. Yeah. Uh, I found it interesting that the operational costs of splitting up alone will reach $2 billion. Whoa. Uh, just to get it done. And it's going to lower, but it'll lower the company's debt by more than $75 billion by the end of the year. Are there job cuts involved? Do we know? Not, uh, I didn't read anything Not about job cuts. Yet, yeah. um, but regarding the other conglomerates, people are wondering if, you know, Emerson, Roper Technologies, which owns a lot of companies that serve various niche markets, or even 3M could be the next to follow. Hmm, interesting. So I guess we'll kind of see if that, uh, that actually happens. All right. <clears throat> Moving on to our next most popular story. Tesla driver killed in fiery crash. A woman was driving a Tesla near Cincinnati when the car went off the side of the road and hit a landscape boulder and two trees. The car exploded and the battery made it difficult to put out the fire, let alone get near the blaze. Local authorities say the batteries keep generating heat and keep reigniting. The National Transportation Safety Board has said the lithium-ion batteries pose safety risks to first responders after crashes. The car was unrecognizable after the crash and the fire. Anna, did you see the photos of the car, of the aftermath? It is just very intense and terrifying. Yeah. I, you know, unfortunately, high speed crashes are known to increase the risk of vehicle fires. Mm-hmm. I think that goes for both gasoline powered vehicles and electrics. Um, now, I think the question on everyone's mind is are EVs more dangerous right. than? gasoline powered vehicles in a crash. And so far that's not really been proven to be true. Um, according to Tesla's website from according to Tesla's website, mm-hmm. we'll take that with a grain of salt, but um, it says from 2012 to 2020, there have been approximately one Tesla vehicle fire for every 205 million miles traveled by comparison data from the NFPA and the U S department of transportation shows that the United States 
Um, in the United States, there's a vehicle fire for every 19 million miles traveled. So I think obviously what they're trying to say is it's safer, fewer vehicle fires in Teslas. Again, I'll take it with a grain of salt. I think you should too. But but the fact of the matter is even auto safety agencies like IIHS, like they gave the Model 3 a top safety pick plus last year. That's like the most stringent criteria for safety. Um, and that's a not-for-profit organization. I think they're trustworthy. Right. So with all that said... I think all this spot reporting on Tesla crashes and fires is going to kind of continue to push that narrative that mm-hmm. EVs are more dangerous um, than traditional gas powered vehicles. And that seems like it's, you know, not true. Right. So I think, I don't know, like this is part of the problem. You're, you're part of the problem, David, is what I'm getting as at. I, yeah. as I often am, man. Wow. as I often am. We could have um, just led with that. Yeah, uh, I should most most of the time. Yeah, yeah. No, how are you doing? You're the problem. You're the problem. I am the podcasts fly in the ointment. (laughs) All right, Uh, Jeff is. I mean, it sounds like part of the issue is that authority um, emergency personnel have a lack of experience fighting EV fires. Yeah, I think, you know, and we've talked about this, in my opinion and feelings about Tesla and Musk, they're just like a roller coaster. They're up and down because <laughs> you appreciate some of the stuff that he's capable of doing and the like the growth in this business is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But then some of these things just make you shake your head. We talked last week about how they're basically just getting in a pissing match with over with the NHTSA on how to handle a recall. Mm-hmm. Right. And all they'd really have to say is, hey, this is how we're going to do it. Is that cool? Mm-hmm. And I think everybody would be. And this is another one of those situations, and you don't want to gloss over this because it was a tragic accident and everything, but it reportedly it takes about 10 times as much water mm-hmm. to put out a fire from an electric vehicle, especially these Tesla batteries. Apparently, these Tesla batteries are especially hot. Yeah, well, and they short, and then they, because they, they can put them out, but then they restart. Right, and that is why Tesla does put this out in a first responder's document that you have to find. Okay, they don't make it public knowledge. They don't make it easy to find. There's also stuff in the owner's manual, which I'm sure every you know firefighter and EMS is taking a look at the Tesla owner's manual, where it says you're going to need three to eight thousand gallons of water to put out an engine fire because right. of the battery. <clears throat> Again, for a typical internal combustion engine, about three hundred gallons of water. Mm-hmm. Now that isn't to say electric vehicles are more dangerous. That's not my point. My point is when you are doing something that is so paradigm shifting as an electric vehicle and what Tesla is attempting to do, you have a responsibility, in my opinion, to be proactive in engaging people who are going to help make sure everybody else is safe Mm -hmm. when they're operating your product on the roadway. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I'm not sure that anything could have been done to save this driver, unfortunately, but for the EMS and the folks responding, if they could have known beforehand, hey, we're going to need a lot more water because it's a Tesla, Mm -hmm. we don't know. And we don't know going forward and hopefully as tragic as this situation is, Potentially, it serves as sort of a benchmark in terms of helping first responders and firefighters know we need to know what type of vehicle it is. So when we get there, we have greater resources to uh, to attack the situation. What was the car maker? Was it VW that we were talking about a few weeks ago where they bring in EMS to train them on putting out? Uh, oh, no, it was like a Jaws of Life situation, right? Yeah, it was. It was at the in Tennessee. Oh, OK. All right. Um, no, talking about the tragedy, it was, you know, a mother of five. Um, and sometimes you you don't want to separate the tragedy from like uh, the story. And it's just, uh, it's really hard to, uh, really hard to digest. Um, It made me think about, you know, as we're coming into the holidays, just some simple things outside of autopilot and EVs and everything, just be more careful and attentive while you're Mm -hmm. driving. Um, 
and I, you know, I hear it all the time around the holidays where people talk about like a lot more people on the road these days. Uh, you got to make sure that you're extra safe around the holidays. But Thanksgiving is actually just a little bit more dangerous than a regular weekend. Um, and Christmas is actually safer to drive during mm. the holidays. Um, I know that it's kind of a random deal. But uh, so in terms of the most dangerous weekends to actually drive in, it's uh, Memorial Day, Labor Day, July 4th. And then it takes you a little bit to get to like Thanksgiving and Christmas. So even though they're going to throw that fear out there, mm-hmm. it's not any more dangerous. It's actually safer. Maybe now, like, because less people are even going to drive this year. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, a very tragic story. And just, you know, hoping that we can figure out a better way to put out EV fires. Well, I mean, deal with this reignition problem. Like, that's a, I yeah, mean, that's a big yeah. issue. And, well, and just I, being more transparent. I think that's Tesla's biggest issue right now. Mm-hmm. We've said a million times, sorry to cut you no, off. No, no, no. But they don't, they don't have any type of public access. They don't have anybody that you can just get a hold of them. And, and I mean, all you can seem you can only do is direct tweet at, uh, at Musk and try to get a response yeah. there. I mean, yeah. Well, you're not going to like it. But I mean, we talked about tracking cars. And, you know, if you're tracking cars a little bit more and emergency personnel know they're going to an EV fire before they leave. Maybe that sort of tracking helps them better prepare for what they're in, they have in store. We're gonna do this again. Just learn, maybe that's not. different than what was going on in that other story. Very You're not different. gonna like this, but the same. <laughs> All right, our most popular story this week: oil tanker explodes in Sierra Leone, killing at least 98 people. More than 100 people are dead after an oil tanker exploded near Sierra Leone's capital. Dozens were severely injured and others were put in harm's way as they tried to collect leaking fuel. The tanker, the tanker collided with another truck as it was pulling into a gas station. Both drivers exited their vehicles and warned people nearby to vacate the area. And leaking, the leaking fuel somehow ignited and a massive explosion followed. Jeff, did you see the footage of the devastation from this accident? Yeah. yeah. No. It, was, it was horrible. And what's... I think the part that got me, um, for, for whatever reason, the most is that there were people rushing up, yeah, to try to collect the fuel that was that was spilling out. And you'd hope that was more of a safety situation, but that's not the impression you got. Like they were trying to get this fuel for their own use, because, basically. yeah, because it's such an <clears throat> impoverished population. That's you know, yeah, I don't know. So when we when we get these stories, there's the sort of the main topics that jump out at you. The first one is is safety, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, another one is energy resources of energy management of energy resources and things like that and the last one because it's been such a hot topic for the last couple of years is infrastructure improvement well like you said this is an impoverished country just to give you some perspective the gdp of sierra leone is about four billion dollars the state with the lowest gdp in the united states is i believe it's vermont and it's at about 32 billion Mm-hmm. So that just gives you some perspective as yeah. far as how rough things are. So when we talk about putting money into safety and all that other stuff, the reality is that's that's not it's just not going to happen. There's mm-hmm. there's no way. So I guess my takeaway is when we look at this and we look at all the things that we're trying to do with renewable energy sources, and we try to do things better with transportation and, and all the inherent issues there in terms of emissions, in terms of safety. We just mm-hmm. talked about it a little bit. I don't know, maybe an environment like this where there is potentially less disruption in trying to develop lower cost renewable fuel alternatives, Mm -hmm. maybe countries like this are a good opportunity. 
to really test those things out and put them in place so you can avoid tragedies like this. You've got an infrastructure that is not as complex, not mm-hmm. as detailed. There's not as much reliance on it, unfortunately. I'm not saying it's a good thing. Right. I'm just saying if we're looking at a place because one of the obstacles in really refining these things is cost and how do you do it? How do you really get in there and see if it's going to work in a real-world situation? Yes. Potentially in helping to avoid situations like this, maybe this is a good proving ground. Maybe yeah. some of these impoverished countries offer an opportunity for us to go there and do things on a great, grander scale mm-hmm. to see how well they could work um, in, a, in a bigger environment, I guess. I actually had the same thought, but I was thinking uh, regarding automated or autonomous trucking yeah. as a possible proving ground. Uh, Anna, one of the things that I was inspired by is how many people were creating homemade stretchers to try and get people out of harm's way. And it was sort of another example of the people rallying to try and help as many people as possible after such a tragic event. Yeah. You know, you kind of have to look for those small bright points in an otherwise just devastating story. I think this is probably one of the saddest incidents that we've covered Mm -hmm. recently. Um, And as Jeff mentioned, you know, like the loss of life, at such a high volume being due to the fact that these people are so poverty stricken that they ran towards this dangerous yeah. situation, volatile truck crash with, you know, just to try to get some of their hands on some of that oil that they could sell. Um, yeah. I, you know, the, the, the proving ground idea is interesting, although <clears throat> Sierra Leone has a lot working against it. Um, they had a very difficult and long running civil war Um for like, I think like 15 years. Um, and since then, it's my understanding that there's just still been a lot of corruption um, present there. Mm-hmm. So I don't know exactly if that would work, but, um, you know, they're they're in a bad place. Like I, the BBC um, ran a report about this and they mentioned the, the UN's Human Development Index, which measures a country's level of social and economic development based on life expectancy, average years spent in school, expected years of education, and gross national income per capita, Sierra Leone ranks 182 out of 189. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. Man. what I know. And, and like what's crazy is they're sitting on like this massive treasure trove of natural resources. They have a lot of minerals. They have diamonds. Okay. Um, but it's driven so much conflict in that region, just, you know, people struggling to get possession of those resources and, you know, that it's just left this horrible imprint. And it just seems like, I don't know, it's a sad situation all around. Mm-hmm. That's all you can say, I guess. But Yeah, the death toll is now at 131 with 63 still in the hospital, 19 of those in critical condition. Um to your point, people weren't just like running up to the accident. They were driving motorcycles, motorbikes <laughs> mm-hmm. to get ahead of people to collect fuel. Um, but it also included people that were trapped in the traffic behind the accident. Uh, another thing that I found just absolutely um, devastating was that a lot of these people were it was a mass burial where they just took DNA and tissue samples from unidentified bodies and numbered the graves. Mm. So that way they could be identified later. It was just horrifying. Um, but hopefully, um, hopefully something can be done to try and prevent these accidents going forward. Um, because when you see the footage from this, it is just, you know, you don't think that a, a tanker accident is capable of creating that much destruction. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. Footage. And, and I think like to your point, um, you know, international exposure, mm-hmm. uh, 
can only help the situation in my opinion because it does put some pressure on the the government and um you know in that area to try to do something about that um it's not you know it's not being it's not something that just it happens in Africa so no one notices right. you know what i mean it's like yeah. it's good that people are noticing so you said there were only seven countries worse in terms of what economic development according to that index it measures life expectancy time spent in school um like expected years of um years of education and then gross national in- income per capita okay so okay not something you want to be at the bottom of no all right well let's move on to in case you missed it let's cover a couple of the stories that you know maybe weren't as popular with their audience but still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward jeff as we move into, in case you missed it, what is your story this week? Yeah, so one that caught my eye is another story about a gun maker. Uh, this one's Remington. We talked about Smith & Wesson mm-hmm. a couple weeks back about moving. Um, basically, they're moving a ton of stuff from Massachusetts to Tennessee. Remington, which we, we, we've talked about this facility before up in, hope I'm saying this right, is it Ilion? I think it's Ilion, yeah. Ilion, New York. This is where it was founded, um, you know, long time, 1816 when the company started. So obviously a legacy in this neck of the woods. They announced plans to spend about $100 million in moving about, well, not moving, moving their headquarters and creating about 856 jobs down in LaGrange, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And they based this all on the fact that the environment, politically, socially, towards their operating there and making guns was just unpleasant basically it was just yes. it was just a harsh environment for them and they found a much more receptive um, group for their growth down in Georgia um, so their plans there now there's been since this we broke this story there's been another one that came out that said they're not going to move any jobs from no. this facility there's not going to be a loss but at the same time there's not going to be any growth Mm-hmm. So even though right now there's no job loss at this facility where they make shotguns, basically, um, you have to wonder what this means long term for this facility and really this area. We're talking about the northeastern part of the U.S. now that's lost a couple of prominent manufacturers within this sector. Okay, mm-hmm. Now, this is different than automotive, but it still reminds me when a lot of those automotive manufacturers left Michigan, we experienced it here in Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and they went to the southwest because – there was no, there were, um, there wasn't, they were, this gave them a chance to sort of avoid some of the union dynamics. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of tax breaks for their operating area. And it led a lot of suppliers then to also gravitate towards that area. Yeah. So when you look at what's going on here, you just have to wonder. And Georgia was very receptive to these folks, offering them um, something like almost $12.8 million over five years in tax breaks, mm-hmm. as long as they're creating all these new jobs. I thought the um, the Remington CEO, I want to pull this up, he had a pretty interesting quote when he talked about the difference, or at least the perceived difference in some of the sort of the operating environment here. Um, Isn't this the facility where um, other companies were already promoting other jobs outside of it? I believe that was actually the Smith and Wesson. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that was the first thing that came to mind is that you're right definitely about that point regarding what does it look like long term for those guys yeah. uh still at the plant? Doesn't seem to look good. Um yeah. but if there's ever a time that you are needed the most in this industry, it is now. In yeah. terms of manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just interesting. I mean, the, the basically the company spokesperson even just said the decision to locate in Georgia was a simple one. The state of Georgia is not only a business-friendly state, it's a firearms-friendly state, mm-hmm. which right now they don't feel New York is. 
So, and I think there is the potential that they're masking that a little bit. Manufacturing in New York versus Georgia is more expensive too. Uh, Yeah. So if they are looking to grow and expand, you can also be a little bit suspect of some of their motives. It could have just been a better deal. Yeah. Could have been that simple as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. A, it's a better deal. You know, you're always looking for a better deal in terms of yeah. if you can move operations. But I mean, I think there's a lot to be said that if you manufacture a product in a geographic region that doesn't want you there, yeah. you know, maybe it's best for all parties if you move out. Well, New York has always been confusing to me because there's New York City and then there's sort of the rest of the state. Yeah. So if the climate is like that throughout the state, you can appreciate that. But obviously these workers don't feel that way. I mean, right. this community can't feel that way. The plant's been there for almost 200 or over 200 years. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if we see similar moves from other companies. We've seen it from two so far. Right. Um, Anna, what was your take on uh, the gunmaker moving to Georgia? Well, it, yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, I think it is probably a, a more of a financial consideration, as Jeff had, had said. It could be as simple as that. But um, I wonder, too, if it is harder to recruit when you manufacture a product that people have moral opposition to sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something I ever considered, I guess, but like, does that prevent you from targeting a broader potential workforce if there's people who say like I absolutely will not I think that's a great point make mm-hmm. a yeah. gun you yeah know? absolutely yeah. uh no I, that is a really interesting point like I mean what else uh there has to be a, a number of things out there that maybe because of moral opposition people either leave companies mm-hmm. once they find out they're making a certain product or never even consider it true yeah um all right Anna, what's your in case you missed it this week? All right, guys. The Hershey Company announced November 10th that it has reached an agreement to acquire Dots Pretzels and its co-manufacturer, Pretzels Inc., Mm. for a combined purchase price of $1.2 billion. When this story broke, several people in our office were like, is Dots worth this valuation? And I say emphatically, yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Are you... So... Uh, all that crinkling noise um, is Jeff opening his first ever bag of Dots pretzels, which I brought him today because I found out yesterday he's never had them. He's also um, apparently never opened a bag. <laughs> As I was trying to make sure they did not go flying all over the place. Yes, I've never had Dots pretzels. Well, get in there. Yeah. They're so good. So I dug up some background on this company and I learned that Dot um, is actually a woman named Dorothy. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, this, okay, so this company started in North Dakota, right? And she just made this, like, batch of these in her kitchen in, like, 2011 from a spice mix that she just, like, threw together after she went to Sam's Club. Mm-hmm. And this was, like, 10 years ago only. Yeah. And wow. Yeah, I, like, I'm a huge fan, obviously, of, of Dots. And I was intrigued by Hershey's statement that said this acquisition would support Dots' future pretzel innovation. Because I that too. what is that going to be? Ah, yeah. tell me. <laughs> Different flavors. Mind-blowing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so um, so I think, like, the more interesting story maybe is just that, like, this Dorothy who did this, like, she she just, like, whipped this thing up and went with it. You know, like, in a world of giant corporate entities, like, I thought it was pretty cool that they, like, scaled to this level in 10 years only just because of the quality of the product people liked it mm-hmm. um you know she's really kind of running against like these like food laboratories that their sole job is innovation and stuff so she perfected the spice blend that now 
I'm addicted to and so many others are. So congratulations, Dorothy, on your success. That's awesome. Jeff. That is, is that awesome. A $1.2 billion pretzel? At least. <laughs> That's yes. fantastic. They are fantastic. Isn't that so good? Wow, those are great. I have to say that the only thing, what I like about Dot's pretzels is that she had a good product and pursued major manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Because when I first had a Dot's pretzel, I thought my stepmother has been making these right. for a decade. Yeah. Yeah. And now that Dot, or Dorothy, has her billions, we can tear it all down. Because if you want to make your Dot's pretzel, mm-hmm. all you need are pretzels, a little bit of olive oil. Typically, people use just like a dry ranch mix, but mm-hmm. you can use whatever spice you have. You mix that together with garlic powder. Some people use dill weed. You, and then you bake it. That's all. You bake the flavor on. I mean, I applaud Dot's Dusty Pretzels because their flavor is great. But. Okay, so my argument would be: so you can spend five bucks on all that stuff, mm-hmm. or you can like spend half that on just buy them. Oh, I, I completely understand. They are expensive. Yeah. You'd still spend five dollars, but mm-hmm. um, but I would just do. Yeah, I would just buy the bag. Have yeah, you they're al- great. Have you also noticed after Dot's success the amount of flavored pretzels in the snack aisle now? <laughs> I am loving it. Yeah. Although Dot's, I have to say your weird cheese curl things are garbage. But the the like mustard ones, amazing. Mm-hmm. Southwest, amazing. Yeah. No, the cheese curls are a uh, fast track to heartburn. <laughs> but um, the one thing that I didn't get was that, so when it came to flavored pretzels, I always liked the Snyder's, which mm-hmm. has like the Bavarian style pretzel in like a... Uh, either a cheese or buffalo. I'm salivating talking. <laughs> um, it could just be I'm craving another Dots pretzel. But, Jeff, I mean, you must have noticed as well that uh, there's just, I mean, it's harder and harder to find just a plain pretzel nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of varieties. I, I got to admit, when it comes to the snack foods, I go for what's on sale, Yeah, most typically. Not what? super brand loyal. Mm. Other than I got to get my wife Cheetos. Yeah. And my favorite pretzel was always the Old Dutch Butter spindles. I don't yeah. Know if you ever had those. Oh, hundred <clears> percent. It's they're fantastic. You're not brand loyal on snacks. This is so weird to me. Like, what are you saying? <laughs> like, what? Like, what are you doing at the store? Whatever's wow. got the sale tag. <laughs> they're, they're chips. Yeah. Uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> wow. See, you would like this a, though. No. When we were talking about seasonings with that home McCormick store. You're like, whatever. Yeah. That's well, yeah, more that, important. That's more important than snack food. This could be a male female thing though, because I'm the same way in terms of like. I like to I I will give preferential treatment to whatever snack is on sale. However, if I'm buying tortilla chips, I have to buy Chi Chi's tortilla chips strips for mm-hmm. my wife if salsa is to be enjoyed. Or don't yeah. come home. Yeah, or don't come home. <laughs> like I came home with some donkey chips one day and it was just a terrible, terrible mistake. Just I like, know what you're talking I've about too. I bought that. It's like the huge bag. Yeah, a huge yeah. bag of donkey chips. Yeah. And she's like, You sit in that chair and you eat your donkey chips until they're out of this house. I'm like <laughs> Fine. My, See, my mouth kid, still hurt. My kids are like that. I made. I had the audacity to buy some generic Doritos. Oh yeah. Uh, oh man. Yeah. I mean, you'd have. I don't know. You'd have thought I did some yeah. terrible, terrible things. Mm-hmm. But you did. <laughs> Get your Sam's Choice nacho <laughs> cheese out of here. Um. All right. Mine. Case you missed it. This week was an arc farm that's growing food um, that can grow food amid climate collapse. And I added that can because when I just said climate collapse and not that it's possible, people were real fired up. Uh, So in another example of 
we didn't Google our name. NARC is a Japanese startup <laughs> that wants to reinvent architecture and combat climate change. The company is working on a prototype they call Green Ocean, which will use architecture technology to make an arc for plants. Architecture is a combination of architecture, technology, and culture. In case you couldn't really put that one together on your own. Green Ocean is designed to make more salt tolerant and uh, to be more salt tolerant and combine seawater farming technology, which uses salt water as a nutrient source, and floating construction technology. The concept calls for green rooms both above and below sea level. Above the water is going to be a greenhouse used for fruit food production. A room below the surface is going to be used to grow algae. The project hopes to be on the water as soon as 2022. And I just thought that this was a really interesting concept. A terrible name. Don't name your pro- your company NARC. I get it. You know, it's a Japanese startup. Probably didn't see all the different translations. But also, if we're to the point where we are considering how we will sustain plant growth in greenhouses on floating uh, structures, maybe we got to make some other hard choices. <laughs> I don't know. Incredibly innovative, though. How they uh, the plan is it's a has a V shaped roof that will collect rainwater, mix that with the salt water, mm-hmm. and basically uh, feed these plants using aeroponics. Well, it's cool and like okay, so I just saw this story yesterday about how Heinz is growing tomatoes in a greenhouse that they are like using the conditions mimicking Mar- a Mars outpost. Mm-hmm. They're calling it like their Mars edition prototype ketchup. Oh, cool. Um, for a pen, you know potentially eventually astronauts on Mars like they can't logistically carry all that stuff out to space so they want them to be able to grow food on site mm-hmm. like so everyone sees that story and they're like cool that's amazing that's so innovative but then as soon as you do like something similar on earth then people are all bent out of shape and offended by this concept that like we would ever need this but we mm-hmm. might need this yeah. so like i don't know i i think it's cool that it's being explored it's interesting because their partner, Cartavera, is actually already operating a plant in Japan mm-hmm. that is growing tomatoes and marketing ketchup, doing the same thing. It's called Pomona Farms. So, um, And I looked at buying the ketchup, but I'm not willing to pay that shipping. Ah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, your thought on the uh, NARC concept? I think it's cool. <laughs> Do we have to call it that? Can we call it NARC? Green Ocean. Isn't yeah. it NARC? Yeah. It's NARC. NARC. I think this thing yeah. is very cool. And I think what we can take away from this is it's a very elaborate, very complex structure when you look at it all together. Mm-hmm. Okay, But when you break it down, there's going to be individual parts and pieces and processes of this that we can apply to stuff we do every day. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So I think when you, when you look at it all together, you're like, when are we going to need this? I'm not going to debate that. But there is no doubt that there are better ways that we can take from this type of, of design, um, experiment, whatever you want to call it, and, and utilize more efficiently just to make everything better the other thing i would say in response to some of the feedback you've got regardless of where you stand on climate change and i'm not gonna get into all that but cleaner Mm -hmm. is better Mm -hmm. like you can't debate that right cleaner is better and it's more efficient it should drive costs down and it's healthier okay so at a bare minimum these types of projects offer us that right no i uh i also the one thing i was curious about is uh you know, if they do this for carnivores, it is going to be a much more grim arc. <laughs> be a lot bigger too. Just the algae is sort of innocuous in there. Yeah. 
Um, all right. <clears throat> well, let's get moving on to our final thoughts this week. Anna, before we get out of here, yeah, what's your final thought? I am excited that you tried the Dots pretzels, Jeff. Those are I'm amazing. excited that there's Thank more you for bringing them in. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't really have a final thought other than now I'm thinking about like food made out of algae, and that's worse. <laughs> thinking about pretzels, I'm going to go back to pretzels. Get a uh, a sea uh, what is it? A seaweed crisp. <laughs> Gross. Mm-hmm. Yum. How about a popped salmon skin? Oh, a what? Yeah, that's get, not something. It is. is it? I get ads for that all the time. Ugh. See, my Gross. daughter loves the seaweed yeah. stuff. Yeah. Like oh, really? Club? Yeah, she eats it a lot. Like like seaweed chips or something? No, it's like seaweed. Like the I don't know if it's cr- like yeah. No, it's uh, I don't know if it's fr- like you normally get it in like the Asian grocery store. Yeah. But it is like yeah, they're just uh, seaweed chips. Yeah. 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 She's into it. Um, huh. I am not. She is. So whatever makes her happy. No. Right, as long as she's happy. Yeah. Does it need to be a specific brand? We get the ones at Costco. I don't know if that's a brand <laughs> or not. I know they come in bulk and she eats them. Kirkland so. seaweed chips. And it's a vegetable type product, so we're happy to right, see it yeah, going exactly. in. <laughs> uh, Jeff, what's your final thought this week? So we've talked about this show before, Forged in Fire. Have you familiar with this show at all, mm-hmm. Anna? So this show has been on the History Channel for a long time, basically oversimplifying it. They bring in like four guys who are bladesmiths, which means they take raw metal, they make a knife, a, a sword, whatever. And I'd watched the show before. It's been on for like five or six years. I've seen it on the History Channel, and I'd watch it, and it was cool at first, and I kind of stopped or whatever. It's recently come on to Netflix. Mm. And I find myself watching like two or three of these episodes at a time, and mm-hmm. I'm going, what is it? It's basically the same thing every time it's kind of cool to see guys still pounding stuff out with a hammer and anvil and stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but what dawned on me is the coolest part about this show is after each round you know exactly what the guy who got kicked off the show is going to say he's going to say this was amazing i completely agree with what the judges said i met a lot of cool people and i learned a lot so basically what you've got is after three hours of just busting their butts and trying to form this these guys are happy that they just had the opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. It's just cool to see people just enjoying the process and not necessarily even seeing the finished product in some mm-hmm. cases. Yeah. And I think it was just kind of cool. There's just other stuff. You know, if you watch sports, you can get disgruntled with athletes and, mm-hmm. and other things too. So this show, if you've seen it before, rewatch it again because it is cool just to see how happy these guys are yeah. working this hard yeah. to do this type of stuff. And the stuff they make is cool. Yeah. What was the show? Was it like Garbage Wars where they had to go into a junkyard to create things? I always really enjoyed Junkyard Wars. Junkyard Wars. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Alex, for my correcting my stupidity. So was Jeff, it Garbage Wars in a junkyard? No, it was Junkyard Wars. <laughs> so, Jeff, are you going to be that gracious when we kick you off the podcast? Um, I'll just let everybody know I agree with the judge's decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I met some great people, and uh, I'll learn a lot, and... Head back and do my own podcast now. Whoa. 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 He lets the plans out there. Non-compete. <clears throat> you signed it. <laughs> right? Uh, no. Just kicked me off. <laughs> wow. She is cold. Um, she, she butters you up with pretzels and then just right, right for the heart. Those pretzels are also your parting gift. <laughs> <laughs> That's your severance. Yeah. <laughs> my, uh, my seasoned parachute. <laughs> my final thought this week. Is that, you know, this week brought another daylight savings time as we fell back. And daylight savings time is garbage. Mm -hmm. That just needs to go away. No argument. Bunch of hot trash. Um, I will take every day that I enjoyed falling back and having that extra hour to sleep in my 20s to just have it go away and not have to deal with my kid waking up at 4 a.m. for a week. Yeah. And, uh... 
I just I, like uh, I never really had a strong opinion about it until this year, and I was like, "What time? It's four. Yeah, there's no extra hour. No, that's a myth. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, all the memes going around about how daylight savings time isn't an extra hour for parents. That is real. And I don't have. Do you guys have any tips as to how to coach your kid back to <clears throat> at least getting up at five? I just uh, it is difficult. Blackout curtains. That's all I can. Yeah, I'm in a different place, man. This yeah. just means they're sleeping till one instead of noon. Oh, so okay. I mean, we're we're in different spots. My goodness, I don't know who we have to lobby to remove daylight savings time because it's an abomination. I got no argument. For no, that. no, I, that's I good. I don't really see the need for it anymore either. Yeah, so. if that if there were ever a bipartisan issue that like everyone could rally around, right? Just to like t- show that they're working over there. <laughs> but then. the only state that does it is Arizona. What's going on? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, I will start working on the paperwork for the legislation. Petition time. That's right. What's the uh, petition website that everyone sends out? Change.org. Yeah. (laughs) Just wait for the form. It's coming. All right. Well, before we get out of here, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving us a positive review on wherever, whatever platform you listen to. You can also email the podcast. You can reach us at Jeff Anna or david at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. And if you're interested in a Today in Manufacturing t-shirt, just reach any of us and we'll get it out in the mail to you. Unless you're particularly nasty, then we'll shred it first, put that in the envelope, and send it to you. So if they're pro-daylight savings time, that's what you're going to do to the t-shirt. Yeah, if you send an email about how we can easily remove daylight savings time as a thing, it's coming out the next day. Next day air. All right. David will drive it to your house. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing but time. <laughs> All right. Uh, for Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti, and this is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.